So we've been studying the book of Philippians throughout the month of January, and I know a bunch of you have been here. I know some of you are brand new to the study. Worry not. We will catch everybody up on this. What we're going to start with today is a question about how do we decide what to pursue? How do you figure out in your life, as a grown-up now, maybe you know when you were a kid, how did you figure out what you were going to pursue? How did you know what you were supposed to study if you had the chance to go to college? How did you know what kind of work you wanted to go into? What was your vision for the good life, right? Everybody has a vision of the good life. What does the good life look like? How is that shaped? If you want to just take a minute, I'll, I'll be silent. We can just kind of think together. Who were some of the key people that helped influence what you have pursued with your life? I remember going up to my mom when I was getting ready to go off to college, and I said, Mom, I, I don't know what to study. Like, I saw the sheet with all the boxes you could check for your major, right? And I went to the University of Texas, tons of different options for your major. And I went, like, how could I even do this? Like, what, what do I choose? And my mom, who's a very wise woman, said, what's the one thing you could study all day and not get bored? And so I picked English, I picked literature, I picked rhetoric and composition, this field of study that is still super valuable to me. That was a key moment for my mom to help shape something for me that I didn't really have a whole lot of wisdom to be able to accomplish on my own. Everybody has an experience like that, where someone said something to you, somebody saw something in you, and they said, you should pursue this, like you should get after this. Usually it's a career, right? Like, I didn't just trip and fall into this wonderful role that God's given to me. Some of you know, I thought I was going to go be a lawyer, and then I took the LSAT and quickly learned that was not what I was supposed to go do. For you, for others, it was, you know, you need to be in business. You really have an eye for the marketplace. You really need to be a teacher. You really need to work in this field, this highly specialized field that so many of you work in. I'm sure for a lot of the engineers in the room, it was the first time you ever took something apart. Right? The first time you ever disassembled one of your toys or disassembled something and you went, I like this, I like how this works. That helped you identify something you're supposed to go pursue. Paul's writing this letter to the people of Philippi, and as we've kind of characterized them, they're not all that different than Eastsiders in a lot of ways. The people of Philippi were successful, they were largely well off, and they were very secure in this idea of citizenship that had been given to them, gifted to them, conferred upon them by the Empire of Rome. They were secure in their life, and they loved being Roman citizens. They were proud of that. And what Paul says to them over and over again in his letter is, that citizenship that you have, that's great, but there's a citizenship that's bigger. There's a place of belonging. There's a purpose. There's a mission for your life that is so much bigger than identifying with any one government, any one nation. It's your citizenship that's offered to you by Jesus Christ, that you belong to him. And some of the ways that we've talked about this throughout this sermon series is that when your citizenship is in the kingdom, you recognize things like the way up is down. That when Jesus says to his people, you want to become great, you must become a servant. Or that like we learned about last week, if you want to have your life be full and rich and good, you need to have your life poured out, emptied out for the sake of others. These are all things that are part of that upside-down kingdom, the kingdom of God, where the gospel is alive and at work in each of our lives, and it just changes things. And so our gospel lesson for today, if you want to just write this down maybe as a thesis statement, he must become greater, I must become less. If I want to become greater, i got to become less. Jesus has to become greater, I must become less. And a pathway through this is humility and glory. Humility and glory. 
Now, Paul is going to take us on kind of an interesting journey. When Justin read this for us, you may have picked up on this. There are two different bodies that he's talking about. And we're not talking about bodies like on a table in the morgue. We're talking about like a body of work. Like if you think about an artist, what does their body of work represent? We're going to talk about that as it relates to humility and glory. And the way that we're going to try to land the plane on this is by identifying ways in our lives that we can say, you know what? I got to live my life in pursuit of things that are just normal, everyday life. I have to care about my friends. I have to invest in my family. I have to show up for work. Those are things that Paul would say, that's life in the flesh. That's life where we live and we take care of things and it's good, but it's not ultimate. It can't be the ultimate definition of your life and my life. Wouldn't it be terrible if all we ever thought of ourselves as is how we introduce ourselves at a party? Hey, I'm Travis, I'm a pastor. As grateful as I am for that, that's, that's usually the extent to what we get to, right? When we talk about identity and purpose. Paul's calling us to something bigger. He's also calling us to this life in the spirit, which is another one of his big themes throughout his writing. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. So to kind of set the context for today, Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians. And if you want to turn in your Bible, we're going to be mostly in Philippians chapter 3. The context for this, like I said, very successful city economically. They were in a part of the Middle East at the time, kind of uh, in modern-day Turkey, where they weren't super close to the ocean. They weren't necessarily a port city, but they were just back enough away that they could really benefit from all the traffic in the Mediterranean. Their economic success was largely derived from that. They were kind of on their own. They were sort of an independent city, nation, state, we think. And then the Romans come through, and this is so interesting. The people of Philippi say to the Romans, get in here. Like, we want you to conquer us. Like, come on in, right? I mean, it kind of feels like a Mel Brooks movie or something. But they're welcomed in to be the conquerors of this city. And then the Roman Empire starts to look at the strategic value of Philippi and goes, oh, man, We don't want to let this city wiggle off the hook. We don't want these people to be unhappy. We want them to stay committed to the empire of Rome. And so what do they do? They bless the people of the city with citizenship, which they didn't earn. It was just given to them. So they were entitled to voting. They were entitled to all the other things that came along with Roman citizenship. And they were very proud of that. And Paul talks about this in his letter. And they were also a culture that was shaped by people who were brought in to be a part of their city. Because Rome so valued the people of Philippi, they actually encouraged their veterans, people who had served in the army of Rome, to go and live in Philippi, to go retire there. So it's kind of like Arizona. (laughs) It was a place that was deeply loyal to the nation of Rome. And the people who had been brought in there, even as foreigners per se, were devoted to the ideals of Rome. So Paul shows up here. He's a Roman citizen too, so he gets some of that. But here's one of his challenges in communicating with the people of Philippi. The people of Philippi, there were almost no Jews there. And if you know a little bit about the life and history of Paul, you know that in most of the places he went to to do his ministry, he was going to the synagogues. He was going to reach the Jewish people with the message of Messiah has come. That was kind of his bread and butter. He knew how to walk into a synagogue. He knew how to talk to people who shared his faith background. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we can relate. It's kind of a place of comfort when you start to get to know somebody and you go, oh yeah, you're a follower of Jesus too. Great. I'm familiar with this. This feels comfortable. That's not the situation that Paul was in here. He was speaking to a city, a group of people, that there were so few Jews they couldn't even make a synagogue. There's no synagogue that we know of in Philippi. There wasn't a big enough Jewish population there to necessitate it. So he's having to translate his message of the gospel to a group of people that are unfamiliar 
with all the things that he grew up studying, all the things he grew up learning. Huge challenge for him, right? But I think it's safe to say that he rises to the occasion. So I'm going to attempt to do something a little bold. Uh, I'm going to try to summarize verses 1 through 16 of Romans chapter 3 in one page. I have it right here. It is on one page. We shall see if we get to it. Three themes, if you want to write these down, and this is going to set the context for when we talk about verses 20 and 21 in a little bit. The three themes are, and you can repeat after me after I say them, I got nothing. So say that to your neighbor. I got nothing. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's just, we can just go home. That's a good one, right? And then press on. Press on. Not nails. Press on. Persevere. First, I got nothing. You can say that one more time. I got nothing. We see this theme in verses 1 through 6. I won't read this in detail for us, but if you kind of want to block that out, summarize it, read it later on. Paul starts out by warning the community at Philippi, watch out for people that aren't telling you the truth. Watch out for people that aren't telling you the truth, because if you know the truth, you are going to live into things that actually bring life. And you don't put your confidence in things that are going to bring you death. Paul knew the way to life because he had the way to life knock him off his horse and change his life forever. When he was converted, when he was changed, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ that showed him that he had nothing. He literally had nothing. He became blind for a little while. He was dependent on other people. He had to give up this sort of like robust self-sufficiency that would crush most of us in the West. And he had to learn a new pathway for his confidence. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. But if our confidence is in our job, what happens when our job goes away? If our confidence is in our ability to parent successfully, what happens when our kids do what kids do and show us we're not that successful? What happens when your marriage goes through a hard stretch, if you're super confident in that and it just gets tough? Well, first of all, that means you're human. <laughs> Join the club. We've all been there. But it also means, and this is, the Paul, this is the point that Paul's trying to illustrate in this I got nothing piece, he has been to the top of the mountain. He has gotten every credential, every pedigree you could imagine. He had degrees on top of degrees. He had everything he could have needed to be successful in one way of life. And after his conversion of Jesus Christ, he looks at that huge mountain of all the stature and all the things that he had, and he says, it's okay. I don't need it. I actually count that as loss. He uses an accounting term to say that is loss. That's in the ledger on the loss side. What's in the ledger on the gain side is what I've been given in Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that happen where you reach a point in success, you've just conquered this huge project at work, you've gotten through a tough season with your kids, and you look around and you go, okay, that, that's it. It's over. And there's this kind of a letdown to it, right? Part of my conversion story, part of how I came to faith in Jesus Christ was I spent a good year of my life in high school pursuing the three things that I thought were the most valuable things I could devote my life to. My girlfriend, getting my letter jacket, and good grades. And we can all laugh at that, but there's adult versions of that too. And I got to the end of that year pursuing those three things, and guess what? I felt pretty empty. I didn't feel like I had it all together. I'd accomplished my goals. I had a, maybe a similar mountain to what Paul had. I still have my letter jacket hanging in a closet somewhere. But I felt like I had nothing. And it was in that moment that I was able to have a conversation with my youth leader, someone who loved me, who loved Christ, and I could ask the honest question, which is a theme for us today. Don't be afraid to ask the honest, hard question. Don't be afraid to wrestle with doubt. I could ask it of my youth leader, why do I still feel empty? I did all this good stuff. Apostle Paul says the same thing. I had this mountain of good things. I still felt empty. Why? And the answer is, we need Jesus Christ. 
he will make us full. So that's I got nothing. Now let's talk about the next part. It's all about Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say that, please. It's all about Jesus. We see this theme in verses 7 through 11. So rather than resting on his impeccable credentials, his spotless record as a zealot, as a teacher, all this other stuff, Paul just says, you know what? It's actually about Jesus. The things that have most satisfied me, that have most brought meaning to my life, that have filled me up and made me whole, it's everything that Jesus has said and done and brought into being. That's why our theme today is so vital. He must become greater, I must become less. I think Paul would have given a hearty amen to that, even though it's John, Jesus' cousin, who said that. Everything that matters, everything that holds weight, everything that lasts for the long run comes back to Jesus and is somehow shaped and formed through him. It is all about Jesus. Now the last part, press on. Can you say that to your neighbor, please? Press on. Press on. We see this in verses 12 through 16. He's talked about his credentials. He's talked about how he considers it all loss. And then at the very end, he says, I still have a lot more to learn. I'm not done growing yet. I'm not done in what God is trying to do in me. I'm not done in my work for the church. He says he still has plenty to learn. And this is the first hint of one of our most important themes for the morning, and that is humility. There's a wonderful book by a man named John Dickinson who crafts this theory that until humility came on the scene through Jesus Christ, humility was not a virtue. It was something to be mocked. In the ancient world, if you were humble, you were going to get trampled and run over. But the guy's thesis in this book is humility was actually made into a virtue through the life of Jesus Christ. That Jesus showed how a humble person can conquer anything and can go to the cross and can be resurrected. And Paul, I think, would agree with this and say, it's so vital for me to stay humble and stay focused. That's the ongoing challenge. And he says, I'm going to press on toward that. Okay, that was your one-page summary of verses 1 through 16 and one of the most important chapters of the Bible. You're welcome. So what's the point? The point is that this whole buildup in the beginning of chapter 3 is pointing towards something greater. And Paul talks about it uh, right after this section. The translation that I'm using this morning is the NASB, and he says this, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the next big thing. That's the thing that he's saying, like, hold on, I haven't gotten there yet. I have to press on toward a greater goal. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To me, as I studied this week, the best way I could think of to sort of phrase that in a way that made sense to me, that was maybe a little less up there and a little bit more down here, is that great phrase from John 3.30 that we've already said a couple times, he must become greater, but I must become less. He must become greater, but I must become less. That is an upward calling that probably doesn't feel like it, but that is the calling that is the next step that Paul is going to point the people of Philippi toward. And this is that tension between the flesh and the spirit. The things that we got to go do because, hey, we got to go brush our teeth. We got to make sure that we show up and we're wearing clothes. All these things that are important to life in the flesh. We can't just say that doesn't matter. But we also can't just say, like, I got to go be spiritual all the time. I got to go do all this other stuff. Paul isn't saying that. Paul is saying that the pathway to that, the pathway to living attentive to the things of the flesh, but deeply devoted to the things of the spirit is through Jesus Christ and through him becoming greater in our lives. In my own whatever, my own ego, my own pride, my own sense of wanting to look like I know what I'm doing, all that has to die. All that has to get smaller so Jesus can get bigger. That's the upside-down kingdom. That's the way up is down. You want to become great? Become a servant. You want to have a life that is full? Watch it be poured out for the sake of others. It is not about being perfect. 
It is about watching Jesus become greater so we can become less. Eastern religions would say you've got to find a balance between the flesh and the spirit. You sort of have to get those two things squared away. Jesus says, just come to me. Just come to me, and I will square it all away. So that's the promise. Now let's talk about how this promise is carried out. This is where we're going to go back to verses 20 and 21. So if you want to go there with me. I just found the NASB translation to be a lot more helpful this week, so that's what I'm going to use as we talk. I'll read it again for us, and pay attention to the two bodies thing that we mentioned at the beginning. Two bodies. One body is humility, one body is glory. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let's just talk about that word humble for just a minute. That word in the original language could also be translated humiliation or depression. Now let's hold on to that for just a minute because those are two very negative, very difficult words in our time. But think about how that could be construed through the lens of the New Testament. Think about it how humility, like I was talking about earlier from that guy's book, could be seen as a virtue. That same word pops up twice earlier in the New Testament in the writings of Luke. If you want to turn there with me, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. And then we're also going to look at Acts chapter 3. This is so interesting, you guys. These are just parts of the Bible that I just kind of geek out over. Luke chapter 1. This is another use of the same word that Paul just used about a humble state. And it's sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 7. I'll read through verse 48. This is the Magnificat. This is the song that Mary sings after she finds out that she is going to give birth to the Savior. And Mary said, she sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness, the humility of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary was a person of humility. And as we talked about during our Christmas sermon series, Mary was like the bottom of the social ladder. For this culture, she would have had no power, no influence. Young girl, we think maybe teenager, not really sure what her family influence would have been like. She wouldn't have been considered a full citizen of any country. She literally had no power. And she identifies as being humble as part of the reason that God has blessed her. Her lowliness, her lowly state is the source of blessing from Almighty God. That's incredible. And this is such an important word for those of us here on the east side who are uber confident in our work, who are so glad to be referred to as subject matter experts in our field. Jesus does amazing things when we're humble enough to see it. And he did it through Mary. The person that everybody would have written off, everybody would have said was a nobody. You don't have any power. You can't do anything. You're this, you're that. That was the person that God, to, God chose to do the thing no one else could do. The person everybody else wrote off God chose to do the thing nobody else could do. What does that say about our God? What does that say about the one that we worship? God takes the least likely, the last in line, the poorest of the poor, and he makes their lives the places where Jesus' glory shines like the sun. That's not the reality that we live in on the east side, is it? We've got to be perfect. We've got to keep up our appearances. We've got to make sure our kids look good. Got to make sure our resume is spotless. 
And the gospel says, oh, there's such a better way. There's such a better way. Through Mary's humble state, through her humiliation, every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth now has the chance to live by the Spirit, to say no to the things of the flesh, and to say this is the direction that God wants for me. Through humility, through being a lowly person. So that's the first example of someone who's kind of setting this ball in motion for humility. The second example comes from Acts chapter 8. I invite you to turn there with me. This is also written by Luke. And this is the scene where there's a man, the Ethiopian eunuch, who is riding in a chariot. He's this guy who's from a foreign land. We think he was probably a dark-skinned person, so he would have stood out from the rest of the people around him. He's riding along, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, We preached about this a couple years ago. And then the apostle Philip is carried by the Holy Spirit into his presence. And they have this amazing conversation. And by the way, if you were here for that sermon, I named the Ethiopian eunuch Reggie. Remember this? I called him Reggie because I got tired of writing the words E-E in my notes. And I was like, okay, what's a name that has two E's in it? Reggie. We're just going to call him Reggie. Okay, so this is Reggie, the Ethiopian eunuch. Here we go. Reggie's riding along, and he reads this passage of scripture. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shearer, so does he not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Humiliation. Reggie picks up on that. And Reggie turns to Philip and he says, who is this guy? Is this author, this scripture writer, is he writing about himself or is he writing about something else? My theory is that that word humiliation caught Reggie's eye and he went, what is this? I don't get this. And as the scripture continues, we learn Reggie and Philip have this amazing conversation. Philip leads him into faith in Jesus Christ. He's baptized in a ditch beside the road. And some scholars believe, and this is just glorious, I get goosebumps just thinking about this, that Reggie went back to Ethiopia and started to bring the gospel to Africa. That he was one of the founders of the Ethiopian church. That the movement of the gospel spread into a whole new continent through Reggie. And what if Reggie had said to himself, you know what, I'm reading this thing, I'll just Google it when I get home. I don't need to talk to this guy. I don't, I don't want to look stupid asking a question. Don't ever feel like you need to stop asking a question because it'll make you feel stupid. Look at what Reggie did. He asked a sincere question from his heart and he said, this is something I need to explore further. May we always be a place where people can do that. My life is utterly different because I was able to ask my youth leader, why do I still feel so empty? That wasn't a stupid question. That was a searching, gut-wrenching question. And Reggie asked something similar of Philip. And each of us has people in our lives that are asking similar questions, or maybe we are. And we need to be a place where you're free to do that, where you're welcome to do that, where you're encouraged to do that. And this all happened through God's word, through God stirring up a question in Reggie's mind to which the only answer to that question could be Jesus. That's evangelism. There's something that caught his eye and a friend walked him into it. Being humbled, being lowly is the doorway to Jesus doing amazing things in your life and in my life. Being humbled, even being humiliated is not the end of the story. How does this message hit me? One of my mentors and I were talking recently, and I told him about just some conversations that I'd had with different people inside our church, outside our church. And 
as is the case often in the work that I do, there are conversations that are hard. And there were a few of these conversations that I was having for a period of time where I just went, you know, that felt kind of mean. That felt kind of punitive. I wonder what was going on there. Maybe you've had this experience too. Maybe your boss gives you a performance review and you go, was that a performance review or is that just a kick in the butt? Like, what was that? Or maybe you have a relationship in your household, you've got a kid that's really just you know, throwing you for a loop right now, and you're going, this kid's just brutal. Like All he's doing is just pointing out things that I don't like about myself, and my kid's noticing these things about myself. Like, What is this? And so I said to one of my mentors, like, yeah, these conversations have been hard, they've been hurtful, I don't really know what to do with it. And he pauses and he says to me, do you think there's any truth in even those hard conversations? Do you think there's like just a kernel of something that you need to pay attention to? And I hadn't thought about it that way. And that's not to say that everything that was said to me in, in any given moment is all true. Is there a kernel of truth in the criticism that you're hearing right now in your work? Is there something that you need to pay attention to when someone just unloads on you and they blast you and know it's not justified, but is there something in that that you can learn from, that can shape you? That's what people who are possessed by this call to humility are all about. Listening for the word of truth, paying attention to it, just asking the question, having the courage to ask the question, I think there's more to it here. Do not give your pride any more real estate in your heart, Eastsiders. Don't do it. I've been doing it and it sucks. No more room for pride. No more territory for pride in our hearts. Amen? Let's move away from that. Criticism hurts, but it is a huge opportunity to move away from our pride. So if you've got a conversation coming up this week at work that you know might be hard, start praying. Start asking God, God, prepare my heart for <laughs> some of my pride to die. If you become greater and I become less, it's a win. I think increasingly as we step into those places in the marketplace, when we're coaching, when we're teaching, when we're doing all the things we've been called to do, if we have the humility to admit that we still have more to learn and that even the worst criticism that's leveled at us, there might be something in that that's truthful. Gosh, wouldn't our world be different if our discourse and our dialogue looked like that? I think it could be. So that's the body of humility. Now let's talk about the body of glory. The phrase that Paul uses here, Jesus is promising that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. This is a just really complicated series of words, so I'm just going to try to break it down a little bit for us. First, he talks about how he will transform. Guys, that's a promise. That's a future tense verb. And when we talk about Jesus doing things, there is no action that Jesus brings that will fall short of what he intends. There's no action or activity that Jesus is doing in your life or in my life that's somehow not going to come to fruition like Jesus wants it to be. He's going to make it happen. He's going to get it done. If he says, I'm going to transform your body, he's going to do it. But then he talks about conformity. And what does that conformity piece mean? Well, to conform means to be similar or identical, to obey customs or standards. If you went to middle school, you learned about conformity real quick, right? When I got to travel to Uganda a couple of years ago with my former church, I learned that foreigners, when you go visit certain places in Uganda, are expected to wear pants. You wear long pants. If you're a woman, you're expected to wear pants or a long dress because showing any part of your legs is a no-no. Sorry if I offended anybody whose legs aren't covered today. In Uganda, that's the culture. That's what you're expected to conform to. So even though it was hot as blue blazes there, I wore pants every day. 
Now that's an easy, kind of superficial conformity. The question I want to ask us, I want to have all of us ask ourselves is, what am I being conformed to? What am I being conformed to? What are the values in the marketplace where I serve? What are the values of my office? What are the values of my neighborhood that over time I'm being conformed to, my kids are being conformed to, my spouse is being conformed to, and are they good? Are these good values that we're being conformed to? You can't be expected to conform to something if it hasn't been made already. Something has to be out there that we are being held up against and evaluated against. And that's where our sermon series on the spiritual disciplines from last fall can be so helpful. Because it helps us conform to what God is doing through Jesus Christ. It helps us conform to not activities, not doing stuff, but it helps us conform our character to the way God wants us to be shaped through prayer, through reading scripture, through simply practicing, creating space to just meditate and listen for God. I had a very, very, very busy person come up to me the other day who's part of our church and just say, hey, that rule of life sermon series, that card, that has been changing my life. I am so thankful that we did that. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, we have some of these cards on the welcome table. They're just suggestions about spiritual disciplines for ordinary people. That's how we are conformed, shaped, molded, not by outside forces that are going to come and go, that are just the trend of the day. That is how people who follow Jesus can be conformed to something greater. And it's the greatness of Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus that we are being conformed to. And you get to be a part of Jesus' glory when you come to worship. You get to be a part of Jesus' glory when you and your small group go serve. You get to be a part of Jesus' glory when you teach kids and you have kids come up to you and say things like, Jesus, the Holy Spirit helps people follow Jesus, which I got to hear from one of our kids a few weeks ago. He just ran up to me and said, the Holy Spirit helps people follow Jesus. And I just went, okay, we're done. We can all go home. Because if that kid knows that truth, we're good. The future's in good hands. What is the theme of your body of work? What are you being conformed to in your professional life, in your married life? And can we invite one another to be a part of something glorious? I think we can. I think there are two things coming up that we need to be a part of. We're going to welcome our friends from Paradise Baptist Church here for dinner and for worship on February 25th. That is an amazing night of the kingdom where we see women and men, different races, worshiping together in one spot, and it's awesome. And I want us all to start thinking and praying about that night. Who can we invite into that? Because that is a vision of God's glory and God's glorious kingdom that is very rare. And as a friend of mine said to me this week, our city needs Bethany and needs paradise to keep moving ahead in our friendship. And I want every one of us to be a part of that and invite someone into that. That's one upcoming moment of glory. Another upcoming moment of glory, we all know if you've been around church, is Easter. It's April 1st this year, so we'll have tons of April Fool's jokes that day. It'll be great. But invite someone to be here. Be a part of Easter. Easter is a huge front door. It's not the only way people get connected to the church by any means, but it's a huge opportunity. So put that on your calendar if it's not already on there. April, February 25th, Paradise. April 1st, Easter. We're going to move toward the glory of God in those moments in some powerful ways. And as a church, one of the things we have to remember about glory is that it's not ours. It belongs to Jesus. Paul talks about this in the passage. But we get the opportunity to host, exemplify, exude elements of God's glory when we worship together. 
I love hearing y'all sing. I love being the pastor of this church because we get to participate in God's glory together. It's an amazing thing. And that's what we get to invite others into. So I hope you'll be considering that with me. When we live into the calling that Paul puts out in front of the Philippians, to live by the Spirit. We're not saying the things of the flesh don't matter. We're saying we want to be a people that are about these things, that are about humility, that are about pointing others toward the glory of God. We can do it better in community than we can by ourselves. And someone's life is going to be changed because you and I look at humility and we look at glory differently. These are Jesus' gifts, and yet they're not just for us. I would argue that they're for people who aren't here yet. Asking the question of conformity isn't just for you when you go to work. It's so you can set an example to the people around you that's different. A few years back, I was hiking one of my favorite spots. It's a trail uh, off of I-90 that you've probably seen, Denny Creek. It's just a great hike. It's actually kind of a holy place for me because I'll go by myself and I'll just, you know, have my backpack with some food and my Bible and a journal. I just go get away for a day. So I'm hiking there two summers ago. I get done with the hike. I'm coming back to the parking lot. It's all dusty and brown because it's summertime. And I see a group of boys, probably a half dozen of them or so, over on the other side of the parking lot. And they look like middle schoolers. And they're, you know, goofing around and doing things middle schoolers do. And I looked away from it. I can't remember what I did. I think I pulled something out of my backpack and looked away. And when I looked back, there was one boy standing by himself. And the other boys had disappeared. I didn't know where they went. But you know that feeling after you've seen something happen and you go, I think there was an argument. I think something just went down. Right? Like you come in the room and people are all kind of sitting there and they're just like this. It's kind of like that. Like I felt like something had just gone down. And so I walk up to this boy and, you know, he's like, up to here on me, right? Like just this little pipsqueak of a middle schooler. And he's just about ready to cry. I can just see it. And so, of course, my heart breaks in that moment. And I get down in front of him, right? I don't know this kid, right? And like, you know, as a pastor, I have to think like, okay, even though I want to hug this kid, I probably shouldn't, like, you know, all that kind of thing. And I just look at him, I say, are you okay? Are you all right? And he can't answer. Like, he's just stuck. It just sucks. And I say to him, you'll be okay. And part of what was happening in that moment is for me, as a kid who was bullied, back in my middle school days, I knew how he felt. We're not supposed to say that, right? We're not supposed to say to people, I know how you feel, because most of the time it's not true. That was true. I knew how that kid felt. And that's that moment when God says, this place where you were hurting wasn't just for you. This place where you experienced deep pain, it's not just for you to get over. It's not just for you to work through it. This kid needs to hear about that. This kid needs to hear your story. And they need to know that it's going to get better. And the thoughts that I know were going through that kid's head I don't have any friends, I'm worthless. The things that he thought his life should be about, hanging out with those boys, it all just got destroyed in a moment. And I've been there. And I was reminded in that moment that that was, that was 
that is still a dangerous place for me, where I go, other people's approval matters. I want to look good. I want to look sharp. I want to be right in front of these guys. I want other people's approval. I could feel that tension in his heart. And I wish I could tell you guys that I was able to tell him about Jesus, that I was able to pray with him. Nothing like that. But next time I want to. Because the next time it might be my kid. Or it'll be one of our kids. He must become greater and I must become less. For that boy, he was experiencing something that he thought was really great and not being great. And that's a moment, and I pray that that's a moment for him wherever he is now, that he can look back on it and go like, you know what, someone showed up to me and I just, I felt loved. And maybe somebody else gets the opportunity to tell that boy about Jesus. And I'm okay with that. Maybe somebody else gets to come into his life and say, no, it, it will be okay, and here's why it's going to be okay. Because in Jesus, all of his promises are true. And what he desires to heal you and I from, this is our challenge for the week ahead. The places of our deep brokenness and pain are the places where God is calling us to be humble and calling us to do something for his sake. And we need eyes to see it and ears to hear it and hearts that are willing to be a part of it. So take your stories this week, Eastside. Take your places of brokenness. Don't be afraid to ask a hard question and don't be afraid to let somebody into that place where they need to see the humility of Jesus so that they can be led into the glory of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band to come join me up here. And as a way to respond to this message, to this time, we're just going to reflect on some scripture together. I'm going to ask the video team to put Psalm 131 up on the screen. It's a short psalm. I'm going to read it for us, and then I'm going to invite all of us to read it in just a moment. But what I want us to do is just take this time and ask for the humility that you know you need to do the thing that God wants you to go do this week. And ask for the glory of God to shine through you, even in your brokenness, even in your worst places. So listen now to these words. We'll reflect on them together. And then I'll invite you to share these words with me in just a moment. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, people of God, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. I invite you to just consider that scripture now with me for just a moment. I'd like to invite you to stand and read these words together. Please join me as we say these words. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Jesus, this is our prayer. 
that you would disaffect us and change us so that we don't look for satisfaction in our flesh. There's stuff we got to do. There's jobs. There's kids. But God, we want our deepest satisfaction, like the psalmist says, to come from you. That we can be so deeply satisfied in your provision. And that like a weaned child, you would allow us to be nourished and sustained and allow us to go forth, allow us to go and be the people you've called us to be. May the places of our brokenness be the places where your humility and your glory breaks forth. May we find ways to engage those dark, dusty corners of our hearts that need healing. May we do that in safe ways in community to bring healing. And then may we employ those things that you have done in each of us or that have been done to us so that we might find more opportunity to speak of your grace and to invite others into your amazing story. God, this is our prayer. Now as we join our voices again to sing and to praise you, continue to do your mighty work in each of us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.